Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Christos Lazaridis, a neurointensivist at the University of Chicago, and he's here to discuss brain death. Christos Lazaridis, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Well, I was going to ask you about what brain death is, and we'll definitely get to that, but I think I have to start by asking, uh, what is a neurointensivist? Yeah, so I guess that there are two words in there, neurology and intensive care. Um, The idea is that uh, it's a specialized um, critical care subspecialty that is designed basically to provide multi-organ support and brain support for patients who have either um, serious acute brain injuries or patients who are post-neurosurgical procedures. And so it combines fields of knowledge from basic critical care, like, for example, principles of mechanical ventilation, hemodynamic support, but it has a special focus on improving brain outcomes in patients with different types of acute brain injury. So would like um, like the life support side of neurology, was that sort of approximately the thing to have in mind or what? That, that's a very nice way to put it. Uh, life and brain support. Okay. Okay. So speaking of life support, um, maybe we could ease our way into the topic of brain death by just talking about life support technology. Um, how did that come about? Like, what are some of the things that our life support technologies can do? What are some different life support technologies we have available right now? So if you look at the history of, I guess, critical care, and you identify as a landmark point the 50s, for example, after the polio epidemics in Europe, particularly in Denmark, that's where you have a large number of people who require respiratory ventilatory assistance. And so uh, that's where a primitive form of mechanical ventilation comes about. Basically, machines that provide oxygen, airway pressure, and ventilation for the human body. Would that be because the brain is no longer making the lungs automatically breathe, or could it also be because the lungs are sort of physically damaged? In this specific scenario, polio had to do with the fact that the muscles and the nerves cannot support spontaneous regular breathing. Okay. And so you need artificial support. And so from there on, you have a exponential increase of uh, concomitant evolutions in technology and artificial support and machinery and medical knowledge. And uh, so you end up with a point um, uh, currently where you have actually technology that can take over or support to a very large extent the function of the heart and the circulation and the function of the respiratory system, the function of the kidneys. So take something like ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, where you have a machine, you have a membrane that oxygenates the blood, pumps through the body, and then is able to also um, deal with elimination of carbon dioxide. So you basically take over with the machine the function of the circulatory system and the function of the respiratory system. It's like you skip the breathing part. You just magically (laughs) oxygenate the blood and uh, take care of the carbon dioxide problem. Is that right? That's what I'm visualizing here. Imagine instead of like lungs actually physically breathing in air, you're just skipping the intake of air part and like doing the actual what, what the lungs are there for. So that's mostly right. 
you can have a patient who they have minimal uh, pumping heart function and uh, very, very sick lungs, for example, where there is heart and lung failure, and you can take over the function of these organs in this artificial mechanical uh, way. So by replacing these vital functions in an artificial way, you're able to support uh, patients and function of the organism for far longer than you could without this machinery. In fact, without this machinery, a lot of patients would just die, meaning their heart and lungs would stop working, oxygen, nutrients would not uh, circulate around, cells would not be able to produce energy, and then you would have a gradual disintegration of organ systems. And these machines are all like outside the person, quote unquote, like plugged into them, or do, are there versions of them that you would maybe like implant in the person to uh, uh, you know, have an artificial heart, artificial lungs, or is that like a separate thing? That's that there are implantable devices, something like ventricular assist devices, where you actually put something that can support pump function and enhance it. Mm. Uh, so there are different versions uh, of increasingly sophisticated mechanical circulatory respiratory support. But I guess like being exterior to the person is connected up with it being temporary. Like we're temporarily hooking them up to this because we want to like heal them so that they can do it on their own eventually. It seems like there's a connection there. That is correct. Um, and uh, obviously this can happen in specialized places. You don't, it's not only the machinery obviously, but a very sophisticated, complicated um, degree of knowledge and care. So there are specialized nurses, specialized units, and specialized physicians who provide this kind of support. Mm -hmm. The one thing you cannot really support is um, artificially, for example, consciousness. But maybe we can get to that uh, a little bit later. Yeah, it's a little hard to imagine what that would be, like a device <laughs> that thinks for you. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe would it think what you would think, or maybe it would think what it wants to think? I don't know. You're the computer scientist, so <laughs> some kind of a chip that can replace. Um, I mean, even this would be very impressive. But I guess my first thought would be maybe there could be a device to take over you know, homeostatic re regulation of the bodily systems that the brain does, like that side of the brain, as opposed to the conscious thought side of the brain. So that's very interesting, gives me the opportunity to actually make a comment about this. So there has been for a long time this idea that the brain is the central integrator. So it's the organ in the body that keeps everything together. Uh, and you nicely, you use this term, homeostatic integration, which when we talk about how, uh, if we want to define organismal life, we talk about organisms are not just a collection of different organs, but uh, organs that are they're speaking to each other and they are integrated and they're working as a whole. So the organism as a whole. So for a long time, this idea that the brain was playing this very central function uh, was actually one of the justifications for the concept of death by neurologic criteria mm -hmm. or brain death. It turns out the story is a little bit more complicated. And in fact, this concept of the central integrator has been challenged and is mm. and it's probably false, mm. meaning that um, for lack of a deeper explanation, it seems like homeostatic integration is an emergent property of the organism. Mm. So uh, there is no one centralized thing regulating correct, everything. Correct. It's like a distributed software application. That, that, blockchain. <laughs> that is correct. That okay. is correct. Okay, so since brain death came up, maybe this will be a good time to just sort of say, like, what is brain death intuitively? Um, like, what's the phenomenon? If I say so-and-so is brain dead, what am I saying? 
Right. So let me uh, back up a little bit and talk about how um, brain death and death by neurologic criteria came about. Uh, so if you want to, just a, a brief historical overview here, some landmark events. So I think at least in the United States, the very first conceptualization of brain death uh, is the so-called Harvard Ad Hoc Committee and a paper they published in JAMA in 1968. So basically, that committee got together, and uh, the goal of the committee was really to pragmatically address two important issues that have come up. One is this idea that we, we just talked about in the beginning, that technological artificial support was now able and, and it was used to support patients who may have devastating catastrophic brain injury, who without the support of mechanical ventilation, for example, would immediately die, their heart would stop and they would die. And uh, the second important event that triggered this conversation was the fact that advances in the science and practice of organ transplantation. So mind you, about a year before, in, six, in December of 67, was the first heart transplant by Christian Barnard in South Africa. So the committee got together to say, how do we understand and how to conceptualize patients who they are heart beating, but they have catastrophic, devastating brain injury. And so the committee came up with a set of criteria which are not actually very, very different from what we use right now. Patients who were in total brain failure, if you like, and they would be in a coma, in an irreversible coma. They would not have any brainstem reflexes and at the time also have isoelectric EEG or, or electroencephalogram. So the committee said, you know, this is the concept of brain death and these patients would count as legally, medically, socially dead. Mm -hmm. But I think what's interesting to note about this story is that, again, the committee did not really offer a very sophisticated philosophical justification why that state of devastating brain injuries should count uh, for death. It was more of a pragmatic uh, definition. Then fast forward from there to 1981 where the President's Commission Bioethics comes together to actually suggest statutory language for states to have as laws on how to legally define death. Uh, and uh, that document which is rather influential and still active, although it's probably going to be revised uh, soon, is the so-called UDDA, which is the Uniform Determination of Death Act. And it has two arms. Uh, it accepts death as being uh, one thing, a univocal concept. It treats it as an event, not as a process. And it basically says a person, a human being, can get there in two ways, or they can be determined dead in two ways. One is by the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function, or the irreversible cessation of uh, all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. And the last clause is that this determination should be made according to appropriate medical standards. Hmm. So you uh, just need to have either of the two conditions on this list to count as dead, according to the criterion exactly. laid out in that law. Yeah. Exactly right. Hmm. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of, isn't it kind of funny how part one of the law was, hey, everybody, death is just, there's just one thing that counts as death. We're not like, it's not like a grab bag category. That's like part A. And then part B is like, there's two totally different ways that somebody can count as dead. Like, I feel like those are two kind of like conflicting moves in the law. 
You know, I think, so there's debate about uh, what is the appropriate way to think about death. And we're, here we're talking about death as a scientific concept. And uh, it's probably more appropriate to think about it as a process. It's hard to, you have to draw a line somewhere in order yeah. to medicalize and operationalize the definition, the determination of death. It really seems like the goal here is to figure out when do you pronounce somebody dead. Like the act of legally pronouncing somebody dead feels to me like that's what's driving this. You know, because there are all these conditions we happen to be coming across people in, and we want to know how should we treat them? Should we treat them as alive or dead? Uh, is that right? Is it sort of like a is the motivation for this to be able to accurately pronounce someone dead? Absolutely. Uh, obviously, not only for medical reasons, but the uh, determination and declaration of death has very important consequences for public health, for social reasons, yeah. for legal reasons. So that point of transition from the living to the dead, mm. uh, in order to be identified in a medical manner reliably and consistently in the same way, it has to be strictly demarcated. And so some of the problems may be related to exactly this, that we are introducing necessarily some artificial divide between the living and the and Is that and what you were dead. getting at with your event versus process terminology? So if it's an event, then it's like instantaneous. It happens at this moment. You know, they went from this state to this different state versus process would be more like a continuously, you know, evolving pattern, like a gradient kind of a thing. Is that sort of what you were getting at with that? Yes. Um, let me back up a little bit. Yeah. And uh, so we talked about the Harvard Committee. We talked about 1981. Mm. But there's an important paper, actually, uh, in 1972 in Penn Law Review okay. uh, by uh, Alexander Capron and Leo Cass, who actually had to address the University issue. University of Chicago, Leon Cass? Yes, correct. Excellent. Correct. Um, so they had to address statutory language and create something that did not really exist before, a conceptual framework of how, what are the different definitional levels and standards in order to define death into law. And so there, there are four levels that I think are useful to situate a little bit more of the discussion and understand the debate and some of the challenges. So the very first level is the concept of death. And this is really a, a philosophical question. Mm. I think the better way to understand it is you have to know it's an ontology question. What is the ontology of the entity we are trying to determine death of? In our situation, obviously, human ontology. So what is the essential nature of, of a human being? Yeah, yes. When do they turn from being a person to being a corpse or something like that? They, it seems like a change of what kind of entity it is. That's correct. And you can think about this in there are several starting points, but one starting point is to say we are essentially animals, right? We're essentially biological organisms. And so death of a human organism should follow the same principles as any other biologic organism up to a certain point of biological hierarchy. Now, yeah. another view, though, would be that uh, we are essentially persons or, uh, you know, embodied persons or embrained persons. And so this could potentially generate a different kind of standard. So that's level one. Then in, in the second level, you have to talk about physiological standards. So if you take a certain concept, what kind of physiological standards would fit going along with that concept? So take the biologic organism concept. The physiologic standard should be the irreversible cessation 
of homeostatic integration. That would be the corresponding standard. Then you have to talk about operational criteria. So in this case, the conversation is shifting from philosophical, conceptual to medical technical. Yeah. And so you have like how do you tell that's happened? How do you tell their brain exactly, is no longer exactly. regulating the body? Exactly yeah. right. So, for example, you have to say, you know, uh, uh, cessation of cardiac function, loss of pulse, apnea, uh, irreversible coma. And then the very last stage, the fourth level is testing. So what kind of medical testing can you use? What are the empirical sign and tests to confirm that you are meeting the physiologic standard and the operational criteria? Hmm. I wonder if we could talk about um, maybe some of the background assumptions we're making about um, why it matters that we get it right determining when a person dies. And so I would think it would have something to do with like, look, we just have a totally different relationship to a dead body than we do to a living person. We're not going to bury a living person. We're not going to um, hold out hope of having, I don't know, whatever meaningful relationship and conversations, whatever, with a dead body. Once the person's dead, definitely, we're like good to do certain things that would be horrible to do to a person who was still alive. I mean, so that's sort of what's morally at stake, isn't it? And figuring out how to get the time of death about right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why this demarcation is critical. One way this is very, very important is you said it, you know, we treat differently it's two different categories, the living and the dead. And there is a different set of duties, responsibilities, and things we, and actions we can undertake uh, with the living versus the dead. One very important dimension of this is organ donation, for example. Yeah. There is this principle of medical ethics, uh, a foundational principle of organ donation, the so-called dead donor rule. The idea that the donor should not die as a result of organ donation. The donor should be already be determined and declared to be deceased, dead, and then organ donation proceeds. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, there are scholars who have suggested that the dead donor rule could be abandoned mm-hmm. on the basis of principles like autonomy and non-maleficence. Uh, someone, if they choose to end their life that way, they should be allowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if you're withdrawing life-sustaining treatments and uh, you want to be an organ donor, that that should be allowed. Uh, This has Mm. also been called organ donation euthanasia, for example. But Mm. let's bracket this for a little bit and and still uh, have to say that the the donor rule is a foundational principle. And so it's extremely important for the enterprise of organ transplantation that we we have accurate, reliable determination of death and the exact time and point of death. I mean, this is obviously morally problematic, but you could see how like somebody who was like really hyped up to get some functioning organs uh, for an organ transplant surgery might feel pressure to draw the line earlier rather than later because the organs are only going to be useful for that purpose for a limited amount of time. By the way, how much time is that? Like if I were to tragically die right here at like how long would we have to, you know, harvest my organs? Well, it depends. It's different. There's different ischemic time uh, according to different organs, for example, mm. heart and liver. Mm. Uh, and it also depends on, let's say, you know, if uh, one of us has a, a cardiac arrest now, what kind of advanced cardiac life support uh, we receive. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so if you very quickly uh, achieve what we call return of spontaneous circulation. Yeah. For example, paramedics come in here and they do the right things, uh, right. and then you're placed on mechanical support. Several organs can be well preserved. Yeah, yeah. 
also in this, since we are talking about um, brain death, we call this heart beating donation mm. uh, after death by neurologic criteria mm. versus non-heart beating uh, donation. So we talked about um, like two criteria for whether somebody counts as brain death. One was the uh, loss of this like integrative function that the brain performs. And the other one was the loss of a heartbeat and breathing. How do you figure out whether um, a person is in either of these conditions and like can't come back? Right. So let me answer this in two ways, because you mentioned indirectly um, the idea of irreversibility. And this is a subtle, tricky point uh, that I want to separately. It's intuitive, right? Because it's like, why would you take somebody's organs when they're going to be better in like a week? Like, that's crazy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's by definition, death is an irreversible event. And and by the way, the word irreversible is in the law. So in the UDDA, Both disjuncts uh, talk about irreversibility. Now, this creates a little bit of a problem in the sense that uh, let's introduce here another term, permanence. So what's the difference between irreversibility and permanence? And the difference is that irreversibility has to do with immutability, something that... um, it's uh, practically and theoretically impossible to change or return or be reversible, uh, regardless of human action or not. Permanence has to do with the idea that a condition may not be physiologically or theoretically irreversible. But for example, let's take a patient who has a do not resuscitate order. Someone like this, if they go into cardiac arrest, you would not provide um, ACLS or advanced cardiac life support, which includes, for example, like chest compressions or electrical therapy or pharmacologic support to restart the heart. So there you declare uh, or you determine and declare death according to a standard of permanence, uh, which does not mean that this is a heart that would not stop if the effort was made. So yeah. in practice, in the hospital, we use this permanence standard very often, not mm. the biological and legal concept of irreversibility. Yeah, it, almost there it seems like it's a matter of the patient's preference that makes it permanent, whereas in another case it might just because, well, the person's damaged and they can't heal. That plays a huge role. That plays a huge role. Mm. Uh, And so if there are limits of what kind of support and how advanced the support is going to be, then you could potentially have two identical patients in terms of their physiology and their organ failures. Mm. uh, And one is declared dead versus the other is placed on, let's say, ECMO that we talked about in the beginning. Yeah. So one way a person might not be able to come back is because they've told you they don't want to come back in the way that you can bring them back. Correct. Another way that somebody might not be able to come back is they have really serious brain damage. But like if somebody's just unconscious, how can you tell whether they're just like in a temporary coma and they could come back versus no, they're just uh, their brain's never going to make them conscious again? So this is a good and rather complicated question. Let me answer this way. So how do we determine death by neurologic criteria or or brain death? There are 
specific rules that uh, a clinician has to follow in order to make that determination. We talked a little bit about the very basic criteria that the 1968 Harvard Committee came about. And then you have uh, uh, recommended guidelines on what needs to be done to come up with this determination. And this is from the 2010 American Academy of Neurology. And the basic pillars there is that you have an individual, you have a patient who is in a coma. And the definition of coma is uh, you have someone who is uh, laying in a bed, they are motionless, they have eyes closed, and they have no responses to internal or external stimuli. And then you do a careful examination of what we call brainstem reflexes, uh, which includes things like pupillary re reaction to light or corneal reflexes, gag and cough. And then finally, you do something we call apnea test, which is a way to test the very lower part of the brainstem, the medulla, where respiratory centers are. And if all of this uh, testing and criteria are met, then you can determine someone as dead by neurologic criteria. Mm -hmm. There are important prerequisites that one has to take into account. Patients have to be normothermic. The, you shouldn't have any confounders like intoxications or uh, different... It sounds stupid, but like, what if they're like in a deep sleep? I, mean, I assume there's big differences there, right? Um, obviously, if they're asleep, you can wake them up. But apart from that, just the state itself, I assume there are big differences. So maybe I, I think it's a you're bringing up a good point that I think for a non-medical layperson, looking at someone who may meet this criteria may not look very yeah. different than uh, someone who, you know, the 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 for example, they are under sedation, they are in yeah, the intensive exactly. care unit, yeah. is a you know a warm body supported by machinery. You wouldn't without having this specialized knowledge, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And this is important because the way one communicates the state and what it means to, for example, family members, uh, requires a certain degree of nuance. And um, sometimes it ends up leading to some resistance by family members who may say, well, you know, this is a warm body. I'm not sure why this would count as, as death. Mm -hmm. um, but again, just to complete the prior segment, there are very specific prerequisites, confounders that have to be excluded, and a, a testing process that has to be reliably followed and consistently followed in order to determine death by neurologic criteria. Are we good at doing that? Like, do we, I mean, how often does it seem like a person is never going to come back according to our best guess? And yet, oh my God, you know, it's like whatever, Robin Williams movie moment, they come back against all odds. Like, are we good at predicting that? There are, there are several things one can say about this. So there are uh, scientific medical papers out there, literature, mm -hmm. that suggest that we are not very consistent in how we do these uh, determinations. Mm -hmm. And so there is an important effort from the American Academy of Neurology, for example, to uh, create consistency. Uh, a, a recent document that's been very influential is the so-called World Brain Death Project. Mm. was published in JAMA. And uh, it's basically a, a large consortium of experts who, the, the, the whole effort of this paper and this literature is to say, we need to be consistent about how we come up with this determination. Uh, you know, University of Chicago should not be doing it different than, let's say, a hospital in Connecticut or a hospital in Boston. It turns out that there is this inconsistency. So this, this is one thing to say about, about your question. Then you asked about how good are we in terms of 
been correct maybe about these determinations yeah. you're kind of uh, it's like you're predicting the future in a way like you you know in a way making the irreversibility determination is i predict that no matter how much time we give it this person's going to be in the state you know forever right so here is one way that one can introduce an important caveat in this conversation so what follows the determination of death by neurologic criteria, at least you know, in the United States and in other countries that have this enshrined in law, is that uh, one of two things happen. One is if the person is an organ donor, then donation practices take over. Um, and otherwise, artificial support is removed. And so what follows is cardiorespiratory cessation. Critics of the brain death concept have talked about a potential fallacy that is introduced here. It has to do with a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, having said that, if you look at the literature, there is the occasional cases that sometimes even make the news that a certain person was determined dead and then something happened that changed or reversed this determination. These are rather rare reports. A lot of them are contested in the sense that potentially something was not appropriately done in the determination. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there is this one case that I don't know if you, if we, you would want us to go there now, the, this recent case of Jahai McMath, uh, which is an important and, and uh, in many ways fascinating Okay, so Jahai um, was a a young woman, a teenager, who had a uh, otherwise what was expected to be an uncomplicated oropharyngeal surgery. Uh, Unfortunately and tragically, she had a very uh, significant hemorrhagic complication after surgery. So she ended up having uh, a rather prolonged cardiac arrest and suffering very severe, uh, what we call anoxic ischemic brain injury. The heart stops, there's no blood flow going to the brain, there's no oxygen, brain cells uh, die. And so Jahai was determined to meet neurologic criteria for death uh, in a hospital in California. Now, this was contested by her family, who they did not accept the diagnosis. The case ended up reaching the courts. There was an independent neurologist set by the court to examine Zahai. There were multiple electroencephalograms. Uh, there was also a, what do we call a nuclear or SPECT blood flow study. Basically, it shows you if there is blood going into the brain. And uh, long story short, all of this testing suggested that indeed Zahai was meeting death by neurologic criteria. So what ends up happening is that the family does not accept this diagnosis, as I said. So they moved Zahai to New Jersey which is the only state in the United States that has a religious exemption clause, meaning that a family can uh, or a person can object to the diagnosis of uh, death by knowledge criteria because of, for example, religious beliefs. And so Zahai ends up being dead in California, yet alive in New Jersey. Uh, I guess in quotation marks, see survives for another about four and a half years up to the point where she now meets circulatory criteria. So maybe she's the only person that has two different death certificates in two different time points. Uh, That's pretty weird. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, And and I identifies, I think, that there is a a a lot to be said about this case. Um, For example, you know, you, you wouldn't expect that, you know, state borders would make a difference 
in the status of live or uh, alive. You're just or, moving somebody. It's amazing. It resurrects them. Like exactly, exactly. Wow, I wouldn't exactly. have thought that was possible. And what, just to complete why this case becomes even more interesting, is that at least her family and Alan Schumann, who is a very well-known uh, neurologist and has been a critic of brain death for a long time, they have claimed that Zahai ended up transitioning from the state of dead by neurologic criteria, or brain dead, to what we call minimally conscious, meaning that uh, she was able to exhibit a certain amount of basic purposeful behavior. Hmm. Again, this is contested, uh, and um, unfortunately there hasn't been beyond Alan Schumann, I don't think there has been any other independent validation of this claim. Uh, however, yeah. just probably people don't want to get involved legally after the person's been pronounced dead too. So it could be hard to like really gather a lot of evidence on it. It, it was certainly hard to even be able to provide care for Zahai. So her family had to go into a significant uh, struggle to get care for her. Uh, and she ended up actually for the most part of four years, she ended up living uh, at their apartment mm. with support with a mechanical ventilator. Uh, and so the question arises, you know, this idea that after the central integrator or the brain has died, uh, you would expect the body to fall apart, right? Mm. And that doesn't seem to to be the case, uh, at least for Zahai. Mm. So now that we've laid out the motivation for brain death, I'm kind of not buying it. Because it seems like it's a little bit of a cheat. Like, legally, we have this dead donor rule which says somebody has to be dead for you to be able to harvest their organs for an organ transplant. And then, well, it expedites that process to be able to do it with somebody who's irreversibly lost consciousness. Uh, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to round the loss of consciousness up to being death so that it expedites that process. Seems like some sort of legal trick where, I mean, I feel like the more honest thing to do would be don't call it death. I mean, if the person's like, whatever, cells are still alive and they're metabolizing energy, whatever, they can go through puberty, they can carry a pregnancy to term, like, why would you call it death? Uh, just call it like loss of consciousness. And then if need be, change the law so that the law now um, has an expanded window uh, during which it's considered okay to harvest somebody's organs. It seems like that terminology would be more transparent than like just bringing in this notion of death just because it's like legally convenient. Right. Uh, so what you just explained is exactly the position of a number of scholars and critics about the notion of death by analogic criteria. Uh, another way to put it is that it turns out uh, that it may be what we call a legal fiction, uh, kind of the same way we talk about we're treating in the law a corporation as a person. Uh, and so there is one school of thought that says, uh, well, this is a non-transparent fiction. It seems that we now understand biological death a little bit better. There is no central integrator. And so death of the brain is not, is not sufficient for death of the organism. And so it's not, it's not biological death. Um, so one route would be then to abandon death by neurologic criteria and then think about how one would go about continuing the important project of organ transplantation. And one way to do it is to abandon the dead donor rule. There is a lot of heated debate uh, on this. Obviously, other complicated things would have to happen. For example, yeah. changing homicide laws. 
in a situation like this. Uh, however, there is this other camp, and I, I think I side more on this other side, that even if death by knowledge criteria is not equivalent to biological death, is a very useful, appropriate social policy. So to some degree, yes, it is a social convention. We are drawing a line. People have called it, if you don't like the term legal fiction, you can use the term something legal status. The idea that you now you create a category in law that can be treated in a certain way. Uh, what is the justification there is really the idea that, and that goes back a little bit to the irreversibility permanence uh, debate, the idea that death by knowledge criteria with a good high degree of accuracy, they can get us this idea of permanence loss of consciousness. Uh, and so one way to redefine uh, brain death or death by knowledge criteria is to say that uh, it's the permanent loss of consciousness, uh, apnea, permanent loss of the ability to spontaneously breathe, and loss of brainstem reflexes, which is a surrogate to say, to, to assure that you do indeed have this permanent loss of consciousness mm. because consciousness is mediated, generated by structures in the brainstem. Christos Lazaridis, thank you so much uh, for participating in what has to be the most heavy metal elucidations episode ever. I mean, come on, we covered death. Like, I should have gotten Ozzy Osbourne to co-host this. Uh, thank you. Matt, you, uh, you've been very kind inviting me. Thank you so much. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>